Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Feeding Friends and Community. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with David Gould. Dave is a modern-day embodiment of the Iowa Idea. He's a self-described accidental academic. Dave is a visiting associate professor at the University of Iowa's Public Policy Center. Previously, Dave served the University of Iowa as an administrator at the Bell & Blank International Center for Gifted Education and Talent, the associate director of professional student development in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, lecturer in the Department of Health and Human Physiology, and the first Oberman Center public scholar. He worked with Zappo CEO Tony Shea's downtown project, in its effort to transform Las Vegas into the most community-focused large city in the world. In addition to his work in higher ed, Dave has produced a number of documentary films and creative community events. We explore Dave's journey as an artist, student, and creative that brought him to Iowa City. We dig into the power of connecting people and ideas. And for those that follow the podcast closely, first, thank you. Second, Dave's name has come up in interviews with Andy Stoll, Jesse Elliott, and Mark Nolte, so it seemed appropriate to go to the source, and I really appreciate Mark introducing me to Dave. During the pandemic, Dave has brought his powerful life design course as a free online experience for alumni and friends. The last session will be broadcast live on Wednesday, January 27th, with special guest Dan Lerner of NYU. If you have the chance, check out the final installment. It was an honor having Dave join me on the show. I thank him for sharing his time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Dave, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm happy to be here, Matt, and I'd be honored to. Uh, let's see, I am right now a visiting associate uh, professor at the University of Iowa. Uh, I, uh, I'm housed in the Public Policy Center, but it's it's a little bit uh, uh, a, a misnomer. Um, I don't work in public policy, but I work, I would say, uh, that my entire Higher professional career could be summed in a couple of sentences. Um, I'm concerned about how to make higher education more meaningful and community engaged. And I work a lot with our undergraduates on campus uh, that, um, that are vulnerable, that, uh, uh, that are trying to sort out uh, their lives and trying to get uh, not only uh, from one uh, place of entering college to a graduation stage, but launching a successful life on the other side. And so I teach what I would um, argue are experimental classes uh, that really try to address those issues, try to push the boundaries of what higher education can do. Thanks. Yeah, so much to to dig in there. I do. Based on that, uh, is when when did you have the inspiration for the life design course to actually sit down and try to even frame out what are the things that you want to include and and how do you want students to experience this life design course? 
as with most things, I think the seeds of the course goes all the way back to myself as a student. Um, what resonated with me, what inspired the idea that learning should be fun and should be interesting and should be creative uh, were things that, uh, that resonated with me. The classes that I took, uh, you know, from, from K through 12 into college that did that for me resonated. Um, and so, and I was very sensitive to that. I, I, you know, hated things that were contrived. I hated things that felt like busy work. And, and I was also, a, um, I'm, a, I'm like an accidental academic. I mean, I was not even going to college. Um, I, I, I wandered on a, a university campus on a 16 week experiment is with a phrase my dad used uh, to just, I mean, I, if I'm totally honest, I did it in honor of my father who education was so important to. And I felt that in some way, if I didn't at least give it a shot, that I was I was kind of throwing a, a hand up to everything that my father cared about. But but the the story of where life design came, it was fall of 2010 when I started it, January of 2010, when I was invited to coffee by the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. At that time, the University of Iowa, I don't think we were last, but we were towards the bottom of the Big Ten in retention. Uh, didn't really know why. Uh, wasn't just after the freshman year, but after sophomore, uh, even junior years, uh, you know, summer would be over and students would just be choosing not to come back. Uh, she told me this. Um, I am sure from the provost office, there was some um, extrinsic reasons why, you know, they cared. I mean, you can have the largest freshman class in the history of the world. And if you're losing students along the way, you're still offering upper level classes to have empty chairs, you're leaving, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on the desk. But to her credit, the dean said to me, you know, Dave, I can't, uh, it, it keeps me up at night to think of students that would be in our midst for one, two, maybe even three years and so easily pull up roots. And, um, and you know, I thought about it. Uh, I said, well, she wanted to see what I could do to lend a hand. And I said, give me some time. And, and you know, I think you could anecdotally say, well, coming out of the 2008 recession, we get a lot of, of students from the, you know, suburbs of Chicago, you know, uh, economic times, maybe they were choosing to stay home and not pay out of state tuition. Maybe uh, a parent had lost a job or maybe felt vulnerable losing one. There, all those things could be very rational possibilities. And all of those things I had very little influence on. But the students that were passing through my door, um, you know, the ones that I was sitting talking to, I would say uh, fell into a couple of different boxes. Um, they were students that had I mean, they understood that a college degree uh, was going to give them a better outcome than not having one, but they, but they really, you know, they didn't know the real kind of like, why am I here? Um, and then there was a second group that, that did have something that they cared about. Uh, it could be art, it could be history, it could be literature, and, and the voices in their head or the voices around them uh, were telling them that that was an impractical major, that, uh, that it was time to it was time to pick something serious that you're going to be able to make a life on. And both of those groups, one by default and one probably by the, those voices, were being thrown into, I guess, what the world was seen as practical majors that had a direct job outcome, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
and and I I saw that, um, and even if you even if you could do the work, even if uh, okay, so I'm pre med and I can handle it, and I'm fine. If my heart's not there, or I'm not sure my heart is there, it's it's a it's a at, at best an unsatisfying position. Uh, the statistic is that only twenty percent of young adults that come onto a college campus, not just at Iowa but anywhere, um, know what they're passionate about. You know, they all they all want it, right? They all want to mm-hmm. find something they can dig into, and they wake up to every morning excited about doing. Um, but only twenty percent, when they arrive, have an answer to that, which to me means eighty percent. It's a discovery. And, uh, and so life design really became um, around a couple of notions. It became around looking at the university at its best as a laboratory to discover who you are and what you want to do, and it, or at least point you in the right direction. And, um, and, and the idea that learning uh, should be engaging, should yeah. be uh, inspiring, and dare I say, maybe even fun. And so that's where it started in the fall of 2010 with a hundred students that decided to take a chance. Dave, I love that. And uh, what it's kind of giving me a little bit of goosebumps as we're talking here too, is um, around the same time I was doing uh, kind of outside the norm work for a particular education assessment company. And we were looking at um, a project that essentially, after a while, we nicknamed it Finder Decoder because we were looking at how, how do, through your life, uh, your journey, but especially coming out of high school, going into college, how do you find patterns looking back? Um, m- many of which I, I've known in your life design course, some of the questions, what has inspired you? Where did you find passion? Where do you find interest? Where are your skills? Who has influenced you? Mm-hmm. But getting active or as we, you know, design for like, for me, a big part of design is the intentionality but let's get intentional about this with, without uh, suffocating the creativity, right? But how do we foster and cultivate these things? And, um, and then how do you decode these things and, you know, kind of find this journey? And then that, what's interesting is the pressures. Um, so jumping back, like my father went to Northern Illinois University uh, and he worked at a horse farm in Barrington, Illinois over the summer. So he'd basically shovel horse shit uh, long days during the summer, but he could pay for his school year, right? And there's no way a kid, even paying in-state with a summer job can pay for it. And we were doing more research where we were seeing uh, the students feeling risk and pressure. So now they're uncertain and we're putting more pressure, but almost to your point that there has to be a transactional ROI outcome, you went to school and you need to do this. And we, we found uh, the emotional side of that is, is crippling a lot of people's ability to feel like they're making a good choice. So you're taking a high pressure area and, and, and applying more pressure. Uh, and to, like you said, with, without much guidance in and direction that they've had knowing why they're there. So I'm, I'm just fascinated with this. And I, I love, I love how you, you kind of came to putting that together. Well, and, and, you know, uh, for, for, for starters, um, 
you know, you're, you're, uh, as you may know, I, I went to Northern Illinois University too. So uh, I'm afraid to ask what year your dad graduated on the, on the idea that you could yeah. be like my son. So that would no. be scary <laughs> to me. But, um, but I also grew up in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, which is yeah. right next to Barrington. I mean, that's just yeah. a suburb next door. You know, I, I think that's right. I mean, so let's put something on the table, which is always where I start. Go, I want my students to have jobs. Okay, I, I want them to be employed. I want them to be able to care and support themselves, because without that, um, you know, if I if I'm worrying that I can't uh, pay my rent, uh, that I won't be able to feed my, there might be a chance I can't feed my kids this e- you know this yeah. evening, or or be able to keep it going for the end of the month, or that I sleep with one eye open that someone may be repossessing my car, you know, while I'm laying here. Right. That is a pretty hard place to live. And so, so, and, and by the way, I will continue to be struggling and fighting for these kind of basic needs until they're taken care of. Um, but, but I, I believe in that. So, so for starters, I understand that's the flooring that I want people to be standing on. So I want my students to have jobs, but I, you know, it's almost like me saying that I want you to have three meals a day, you know? I, I do. I do want you to have three meals a day. And if you don't, you're going to get pretty hungry and you're going to be out hunting for food. Right. But and, and maybe, by the way, some of those meals may be spectacular that you recall and think about and share for the rest of your life. But most of them are sustaining to you. Most of them are the ones that allow you to get through the day and, and live another one and keep going. And, and, and life, you know, what makes the day great often happens in between those. And, and, and you know, while... You know, higher education should be thoughtful about preparing you for the world that you will work in and, and how and the type of skills and things, the problem solving, which we can get in on to that because right, I right. think there's a whole other layer of the type of things we should be teaching. But while it should be, you know, important in doing that, I also think uh, higher education helps to make our life deeper and richer. It introduces us to culture and art in ways that maybe we didn't get in our, our hometown. Um, it, uh, it, it, it introduces us to ideas of what it means to be a citizen. It, it, it helps us connect with empathy and generosity to others. I mean, all of those things could be part of the package of developing what I would call a good life. And, um, and when we get so focused and, and, and everything is measured by those three meals or everything's measured by the paycheck um, and nothing else matters, um, then I think we're doing a disservice. And, and that is not higher education to me at its best. So, yeah, so to me, um, it's, it, it, you know, who am I and what do I want to be and where do I want to live and what do I want to do? Um, those kind of skills and those kind of questions that are very disruptive in your 20s. I will also argue that when you learn the skills of kind of thinking those through and analyzing them, they, they, the questions never go away. And, you know, you're, 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 re, you're looking at your compass and saying, is my life still going in a direction that I'm pleased with? Am I still right. doing the kind of things I want? And, um, and like I said, they never go away and you just keep re- returning to that. And so it's a, it's a place to kind of at least get us in the right lane, going the right direction when you, when you leave here. Thanks. And I want to uh, ask you just a little bit uh, what it's like on, on your side of it, because uh, uh, we're, we're three weeks out of the four weeks in of the alumni life design, which is just from my, from my perspective, it's been phenomenal. And uh, I'm, I'm, Curious. I'm jealous of the the folks that you must have in your contact list because uh, 
we know we there was a scheduling change and uh you had uh peter and dame and orfira come in and it was phenomenal but going through these with uh kathy eldon with andy stole how is it feeling from your perspective as, as on the alumni side of the course well I'll, I'll tell you a little bit just for your your listeners yeah um, thank you, you know, the the story behind it is that uh, and it goes back to what i just talked about about how those questions really never go away uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, uh, probably a few weeks, a month after all of a sudden we kind of got over the initial shock about what exactly is going on here, I, I started receiving emails, text messages, Facebook messages. I mean, all kinds of ways it was coming in. And I literally, I was I was kind of logging them and counting them and seeing what the heck's going on here. And I stopped at about 100, 150, 160. Uh, I just was like, okay, I, there's a lot of them. And and they were all from former students. They were all uh, probably from new grads to, I think, let's say late 30s, somewhere in that kind of cohort. And they centered around either, you know, varying degrees of crisis. Um, some of the students literally were like, you know, I've lost my job and I'm, I'm in Chicago and I'm still paying my student loan. And what, you got any ideas for me? I, I'm really in a tough spot. Uh, maybe they resisted. I've been gone out of the house for five or 10 years. I, do I really go back to my parents and my high school bedroom that they turned into an entertainment center? Um, some of them sadly didn't even have that to go back to. Right, so right. What do I do? And then there were the kind of, I'd say the, the other camp that, that recognized that the floor was shaking. I'm still employed for the moment, but boy, this is not feeling comfortable anymore. And, and, you know, I, I'll be honest, I really didn't know exactly, which is kind of how I sometimes operate. <laughs> I didn't know exactly what the life design alumni thing would look like. And we call it alumni and friends because it's anyone, right? I mean, right, it's in a right. university. Um, but I just felt the need to do something. Um, you know, if I could create jobs, if I could, if I had money to give, and I have for in small doses, but if I had lots of it to give and could solve these problems, I would. But at the very least, um, you know, we talk about community. We talk about, you know, the Hawkeye family. We talk about, we use terms like that. And, you know, what do communities do? What do families do in tough times? They, at best, they gather together. At best, right. they, you know, they, you know, they try to comfort and, um, and help each other. And, um, and if nothing else, just to say we're in it together. And so that's where it started. And, um, you know, I, I, I do not usually take compliments very well. I, I think they're usually overblown or sometimes just dead wrong. Um, but one that I will accept is that, uh, is that I, I, I collect um, remarkable people. I really do. My friends are my friends are the best, and um, and you find people like 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 I think uh, you are, Matt. I mean, I, I I'm I'm adding you to my coaching. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. People, that means you know, a lot. What you're doing here, right? Yeah. Um, people that that really, you know, they they they're just saying, look at in my little neck of the woods. I care about what's going on, and I'm just trying to do something good and 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 put my little dent in the universe that uh, that's positive. And if we all did a little bit of that, then collectively would be it'd be a pretty big punch. And yeah. so, largely, these are my friends. I'll tell you one funny story though. So, um, so um, one of my friends is Amanda Gorman, who um, who was uh, just gave the inauguration uh, poem. If you if you saw her, yes, so yes, 
I met her when she was um, uh, met her when she was a freshman. Maybe it was her sophomore year. I can't remember at Harvard. And she's actually worked with my green room class, my life design class um, on on initiatives on the environment. And of course, uh, she was the youth poet laureate at the time. And 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 she we become we become friends over the three or four years. So when I was doing the life design class, um, I was just thinking. I was trying to think. All right, who will I have come in? And I thought, gosh, Amanda would be great to come and do a little spoken word thing at the beginning. So I emailed her and I said, uh, I said, you know, Hey Amanda, here's what I'm doing. You want, want in? And she goes, ah, oh, Dave, I'd love to, I'd love to, but you know, I got another gig that day and I can't. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I said, Oh, no worries. And cause you know, I, and I, and I, uh, I wrote, uh, I wrote her and we had no correspondence. And of course her gig was the inauguration and, uh, you know, and I'm sure she wasn't at liberty to announce it yet, but I'm very proud of her. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, there, but there, there are many of the people, um, well, well, you know, you mentioned some of the folks from the moth and a fear Eisenberg, yeah. something that is somebody that if, you know, that she ha- does have a following, uh, even Peter and Dame have, yeah. uh, have wonderful followings, but a lot of the people are just remarkable people that, um, they're, they're, they're carrying, they're talented. They have a, a, a some some kind of a gift or a voice to share and um and and they're not household names um and uh and so while it's not too hard to get people to come and and hear somebody from the moth if you're a big moth fan um some of the lesser known folks uh, i i ask my my students and i guess the virtual audience from the alumni to just trust me and um and uh the the I my instinct is is that this person is remarkable and it's made a dent in my life. Uh, something marked it with some meaning, and I think I think uh, she or he will for you too. So yeah, um, yeah. No, that's great, and uh, they've uh, they've just been wonderful uh, from from kind of the audience side of this. Uh, Want to talk to you a little bit too about what drew you to Iowa? What brought you to Iowa initially? My understanding is it was. Uh, pursuit of a MFA. Is that, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I grew up, as I, I just mentioned, when regards to your dad, I grew yeah. up in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, you know, we, we were, we were living in a place where if I wanted to ride my bike, if I wanted to go for a run, if I do it, I had to put it in my car or I had to drive somewhere. And I was, I was wanting a little more space. Uh, I was in, I was in the heart of suburbia and, um, and so, you know, we, my wife is from uh, Batavia, Illinois. We yep. met at Northern Illinois University. We drew a circle around our families. We were, I'm the oldest in mine. We were the first to leave the area. We drove a circle around our parents. And we said, you know, we really don't want to get more than four hours away. And um, my wife is, uh, my wife's, uh, she uh, just retired as a nursing administrator for the University Hospitals and Clinics, but initially she was offered a teaching position at Coe College. Okay. And um, and my dad's from Southern Iowa, and there was something about the cornfield, something about this, the space. Iowa City, I think, is a magical place. And um, and so so when she got the offer at Coe College, this then became the home for me to go to grad school. And you know, we uh, we lived in an apartment for a year or two, and then we bought a very modest kind of you know uh, home. I think I think the rent uh, realtor said, you know, this is a nice little starter family home, and I'll be talking to you in five years. And we've been there for you know for over thirty. And um, and uh, but it's this has been a very special place to raise our kids. And as oh, you said, great. so it's pretty wonderful. Yeah, and uh, just jumping back to the student life path. 
NIU and my just connecting a few dots there. But uh, so my my dad graduated in the late sixties from NIU, and uh, he was a uh, biology major, chemistry minor, and he thought he was going to be a high school science teacher. And one of the unfortunate elements of the design of education program for him then was the last thing you do when you're getting ready, that's when you do your student teaching. And that's, that's what he realized. He didn't, he, he didn't like it. Uh, my dad was uh, quite the great guy, but quite the introvert. And so I think the notion of teaching all day. Uh, so he became a firefighter and I always find it funny that it was psychologically safer for him to run into burning buildings than it was to teach high schoolers. It, the, the mean streets of Rochelle, his student teaching was at, for, at the Rochelle hubs. So <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I, so I graduated in 82, so I'm taking a deep sigh of relief. I mean, there that, feels a whole lot, that feels a whole lot better to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I, I, you know, I'll be honest when I, I, as you said, I came here to get my MFA, my undergrad was in, um, was in studio painting and performance music. I was at a gallery in Chicago. I was showing my work and, and my plan was, um, you know, if I taught my, my painting would still be my number one kind of focus. And, and, um, you know, I, I, you know, I came here just, I thought a degree would give me a little bit of stability, a little bit of a regular paycheck while I was allowed to experiment with my work. I, I was selling, but yeah. um, I recognized pretty quickly that unless I had really developed a name, it would become much harder for me to take chances. Right. And um, and as you were applying, be creative, and and which is what creativity is. I, I could play it safe and keep selling the type of stuff, painting the type of stuff that sold. Um, but I recognized that's not what I wanted as an artist. And um, and so anyhow, but like most journeys, that's where it began. And you come out the other side, uh, you know, finding yourself someplace you could never imagine. Thanks. One of the things I wanted to, a couple of things I um, wanted to go back to is just, um, as you mentioned, you're, you're kind of housed in public policy. And um, so early in my career, I was doing... Um, digital design, web strategy, uh, strangely enough, all triggered from an English class that I had at the University of Iowa, where we had to turn things in on a SideQuest cartridge, and we were using HTML. So early in my career, before we had web standards, you know, nobody went to school to be a web designer, right? That was these emerging right. new fields that right. you, you couldn't even prepare for. But um in, in organizational settings, I always found it fun, is nobody knew where to stick the web team, right? Is it marketing? Is it technology? And the amount of energy that organizations spend on trying to make sure their org charts are clean yeah. when the customer is buying value, not your org chart. And I think about that sometimes with students and like, well, what, what department gets this? Who's And the student doesn't care, right? Are, you, are we producing something of value for the student and, and our research? Uh, requirement commitment to the world, right? You know, as a research institution for kind of our academic contributions. So it's it's one of the side, and I'm I'm married to a professor, have other professors in the family. I adjunct, so I want to be careful that it doesn't seem like I'm biting a hand that that feeds me. But I I find it really interesting when organizations get really defensive about their org chart and lose sight of yeah. how they're creating value in the world. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I work for, uh, and I work for and work with some really remarkable people. And my, and I found myself here because the director of the public policy center who cares a lot about the undergraduate experience, about, about the type of young adults that we're putting in the world is also, uh, on the president's he's the, uh, co-chair of a thing called path for the engagement committee about how to engage students and when uh, and when they were looking for opportunities to think of courses and and ways that we could help and engage uh, in a better in a better fashion our undergraduate students um the opportunity for me to uh, to develop some courses and uh, and of course you know this became he's the director of the public policy center and this became my home that's great I'll be honest. Uh, I I could not be happier here. This is uh, these are remarkable, remarkable uh, person to work for. Remarkable team of colleagues to uh, to have along my side. That's great. Uh, are you um, so when you came and you were doing you know, uh, performance music and painting? Do you still paint? Do you still do music? You know, it's it's interesting. The arts are the arts are something I will always be part of my life. I do see myself, and I you know this is uh, this. Uh, you know, I, I, I see myself as a creative um, and I and I don't I, and that just means that I love I, I love to express myself in lots of ways. I, I you know, I clearly uh, those were two skills I came out of. Um, I came out of uh, uh, college with I came here to get my I was more of a, of a painter when I came out uh, and came to the university. But um, but then um, I, I started doing filmmaking and uh, started making documentary films. I made several for HBO, which in a weird way kind of started to take this whole bundle and put it together. I mean, I I had learned to write in grad school. Um, I uh, saw the vis- could see the visuals and see how they would play. I could see music as a character and um, and, and I love storytelling. And um, and then most recently, I have been doing a lot of writing of manuscripts and um, and, and a book I'm working on. And so, you know, so it they are I think the commonality is they are all expressions. I think the commonality is they're all on some form or another storytelling. Um, and, um, and those are, those are the things I enjoy. And, and I have, I have ebbed and flowed between what the exact vehicle is to tell those, uh, at different times of my, certainly my adult life. Oh, that's great. And if it's okay, do you mind sharing? Uh, you've you've worked with Dan Gable on a project, and my understanding is that you're working yeah, on another film. Yeah. So I, my initial entry into documentary filmmaking was there was um, almost there was a colleague at the university of mine who got almost a million dollars to make a series of videos for public television. Um, they, you know, they were educational in nature. Uh, and I had an opportunity, they gave me a, a budget, I had an opportunity to go anywhere in the country. And if I could get someone to sit down with me, I could talk to anyone. I mean, I, I had a budget and about, you know, at that time, it seemed like a ton of money to me. And so I literally traveled around the country. And I spoke with some of the most remarkable people from the, you know, the halls of Washington, you know, the, the our, you know, our senators and to philosophers, to writers, to art, I mean, to all kinds of people. And it was an amazing experience for me. And, and we had, you know, some, some measure of success with them. They, they, you know, they won some awards, they did some things which gave me some encouragement. And I wanted to tell stories that began to break out of the, I love, I love PBS, but I wanted to expand the voice of these were like in 30 minute nuggets. You had to pay, they had to be 28 minutes exactly, you know, that thing. And so I wanted to do more 
substantial storytelling. And so uh, I, Gable, I just, I knew, I heard the rumors that he was retiring and, um, and I knew this remarkable human story that he, that he had a 15 year old kid whose sister was brutally raped and murdered in the family home of his, he's watching his, his whole in life, uh, his parents, uh, he'd already lost, imploding. And in a way to, certainly save his parents, uh, potentially even save himself. He, he, you know, a 15 year old kid with no resources, um, you know, he in a blue collar town where physicality was celebrated, he, uh, he decided he'd continue to wrestle. And, um, and when he thought more about it, it'd be a distraction to his parents. It wasn't going to solve their problems, but maybe it could ease their pain just a bit. Yeah. And um, and then he when he kind of said, OK, well, let me dial it up even more. How would it be if I never lost? And when you realize from that kind of 15 year old kid's perspectives, not only that that kind of target, but you understand the underlying motivation. It's it's really it's really not. I mean, yeah, he's a wrestler, but it's not a wrestling story. Right. And um, and I found it a very human story. It was a it was a 15 year old kid trying to save his family, maybe even himself. And um, and so I followed him in his last um, season coaching, uh, which was a Cinderella year, you know, um, where they won the national championship and the most points ever at the last kind of day. They just had this like everyone won and it just they just took off with it. They weren't expected to. Um, and I mirrored it against all this backstory. So you understood um, the kind of the, you know, the, 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 the stories behind the scene that, uh, that set up what you were watching. And we wove that kind of, uh, kind of those two threads together. And that was the first one we, that was an HBO film. And then we, we did a film, um, following that called the checker king which was something totally different a 81 year old man who uh, was a lost soul in the world um spent 30 years in the bowels of a cement factory never married his family had, had you know had, had abusive father and he'd been kicked out and all of this stuff and he's kind of all on his own in the world and he met uh, the love of his life in um, the assisted living facility they got married and she quickly and sadly died. And that took him to a very dark place. And in her honor, uh, he made this decision to play in the National Checker Tournament in Toledo, Ohio. He'd never driven a car on an expressway, never driven a car over 50 miles an hour. And, um, and I initially chose with a colleague of mine, actually his nephew, to, to, to just go with him, to accompany him. And we decided to... We decided to film some of this just to share with the family and to kind of, you know, his story within a, just a small group of people that knew him. And we realized that that there was something very special there. And it's really a story of aging um, and the story of people kind of choosing to re-engage when, you know, when the chips are all against them. And then I and then the most recent film I did was a thing called Two Sides of the Moon which was the a, a human rights story about a uh, a woman who was a victim of an honor crime in Germany and um and that was a an, a crazy crazy adventure of going to Germany and learning her story and thinking about it in a much larger kind of context about why one human would choose to oppress another 
And, uh, and that took me to, uh, to Desmond Tutu, that took me to the Dalai Lama, that took me to Sheree Mabadi, all of them Nobel Peace Prize winners, and each of them having their own little story of how our world's connected and how they added value to the project. So, yeah, so, um, so those have always been, you know, pieces of things yeah. that I've done. And, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been enjoyable. Thanks. And sometimes I try to dr- dig in with craftspeople a, a little bit uh, on, on their craft or process. So, and I apologize if this sounds so ham fisted, but I'm always curious in documentaries are, are you going in with a point of view, or is it, you know, after a while of exploring this person? that kind of a narrative arc or theme emerges. I'm just kind of not, and not that it's that you're forcing something in the beginning, but I'm just kind of curious right. on where you even put your, your kind of guardrails on where we're, where we're going and how much is explorative and how much is kind of uh, convergent. Every, I'm sure every documentary depending on the subject and documentary filmmaker could answer that slightly different. Um, but for me, I mean, there's an initial curiosity um, there's an initial seed of, I mean, I, I suspected that there was something pretty remarkable about, um, I suspected there was something pretty remarkable about uh, Dan Gable mm-hmm. and what his story might be able to tell us. There was a human kind of emotion that I got thinking of that 15-year-old boy. There was uh, something about this 81-year-old man who was making this decision that I'm going to Toledo, Ohio. I mean, that's where I caught, that's when Harold and I are lives interconnected. I'm, I'm going there. Why are you going, Harold? I'm going because I, I'm doing it for my wife. She'd be so disappointed in how I've lived my life, right? And so I'm doing this for her. And, uh, and, and those types of things is where it begins. If, if I'm honest with you, I never thought Harold would make it. Um, Harold had struggled with depression. Harold had struggled with, um, you know, all kinds of all kinds of mental health issues as he was dealing with his aging, with dealing with the pain and grief of losing his wife. Um, you know, he had tried to commit suicide on a couple of occasions because he was in such despair that I wasn't sure that by the time we got to the end of summer, if Harold would really be in a car going to Toledo. But but here's the beauty is if you if if you got the front part where you begin, then then where it ends is the fun and the adventure and the and the discovery. And and I would argue it doesn't make a difference. It's still gonna, you know, I know where the film is going to end, you know, but I don't know how it's gonna end. Um, Dan Gable is gonna end at the 1997. NCAA wrestling championships. And people would say to me, Oh, Dave, you got so lucky because he look at how he won. And then, you know, those uh, is kind of like a, a Disney film, right? You know, the guys on the stage and all the, the, the streamers are coming down and the guys holding the trophy. But the truth is I say to them, you know, um, it would have been different, but just as interesting if he hadn't, right. what would he do if he hadn't won? Would he, would he have decided he's got to go back? unfinished business would he i mean it would be different and um and i would learn something irregardless and my hope is if i'm learning something through it then so will the audience so it 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 always has a beginning it always has a premise it always has a hypothesis and i know kind of where i think it's going to end but i but but i don't want to know how 
I'm just, we're going to go there. And we're going to, I mean, I'll give you an example. One morning I wake up and I go to my, I go to my door and I get the, this is back when they drop papers off on my door. And I look at the door and it says, Dan Gable is in the hospital. He's broken his hip. And so all of a sudden we are no longer filming wrestling practices in a wrestling room. I am at the university hospitals and clinics watching a 49 year old man get a hip replacement and gradually try to get himself back to meet with his team to go to the championship, you know, and it's, yeah. all, and here he is, you know, there's a scene where he is um, on crutches trying to learn how to walk and he's with a room full of 80 year old women and, uh, and he's saying, he looks at me at the camera and says, I'm training, I'm training. <laughs> and he was serious. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. Was serious. That's, that's, what, great. Well, that's what I mean. So uh, that's, that is, that is the fun part that keeps you nimble. And that's why, that's why you, at least for me, that's why I do them. Thanks. And uh, I don't know, have you seen the uh, documentary that Sam Jones uh, made uh, Wilco, when Wilco was uh, uh, recording? Um, the the album that they ended up selling twice to Warner Brothers, uh, but I know of it. I don't think I've seen it though. No. Yeah. So when they were uh, they're they're getting ready to record uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and you know the it starts with one drummer getting kicked out of the the band, and uh, so but the idea was just I want to record you recording. I just want to like see the end. And then what happened in the middle of it was somebody else getting kicked out of the band <laughs> and uh, and then the the record label not accepting the album. And so all of this turmoil that became more a story about where the record industry today is and artist voice was really but completely unexpected. It was just supposed to be. Can I can I watch what it's like for a band to record an album? That's it. And you know, and you have to be, you have to be open to let the story lead you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you got to go in with some ideas and it's, well, I'll give you an example. It's like a football coach. A football coach comes to a game and granted he's done his homework or, you know, they got the, you know, got all the playbook together or that. And he comes with usually the first 10 plays that they're going to run. It's all scripted out, man. Here's mm -hmm. what we're going to do. But, but then from there, it's like, you know what? We're not able to run on these guys at all. They're killing us. We got to start passing. We got to start, you know, and they start, you start making adjustments. It's like jazz. Yeah. You start improvising. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that to me is when it gets exciting and uh, it keeps you up at night. You get stuck, you lay there and you think, oh my gosh, where is this going? And where is my storyline now? Um, but, um, but it also is where the magic can be found. That's great. Uh, one of my, my uh, when my wife was in undergrad, she was in a, an improv group at her, at her school and uh, Seth Gordon was one of her uh, improv mates. So, he, and he, uh, like he's a director right? and then his uh, King of Kong. And I remember talking to him about, after I saw that and kind of the two years, he, he said one of the things, advice that he had was when a character emerges, you know, you, you let that, you let that story tell itself, right? He's, because I was so curious about how, like for me, and maybe this is because of reality TV, I, I, I become cautious on how much is scripted, how much is open. But uh, so I love hearing, hearing what you've said to where these, these experiences emerge and you're reacting to them and taking them in. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think in honesty, 
you know, uh, I give audiences more credit because I think they can tell genuineness, right? I mean, we, sometimes we'll, we're, we'll tolerate scripted stuff. I mean, we're looking at this and we kind of say, all right, well, I mean, I can almost, uh, my, wife, my wife watches The Bachelor. I'm ashamed to say, but, but we've got it on and I'm sitting there with her and I can sit there and say, well, you know, there's the evil villain. And I can almost guarantee, even though all yeah. of us are sitting there saying, come on, man, you don't want to hang out with that person. It's it, the person's going to move forward because it will create the drama that's needed. And so they're each are each are being cast in some weird way and set up by how they're editing it and the stories they're telling. Right. But I but I believe that I believe we kind of either totally know that or certainly sense it. I mean, I knew Oprah Winfrey um, when because I'm from Chicago and I, I literally met her the first week. It was back then before the Oprah Winfrey show. She was it was AM Chicago. Yeah. And uh, and I, I used to love I loved media. I loved the arts. And so I would take the train and I'd go in and I'd sit in these live TV things. because I loved that experience. And I was. I was on an elevator and um, I was on an elevator and this, you know, this woman comes in or I remember her hair was wet. She's wearing a sweatsuit and, uh, and she says, Hey, you know, uh, where are you going? And I said, I'm going up to AM Chicago. And she goes, so am I, it's my first week on the job. And it, and it was Oprah, it was Oprah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and I would go often and, you know, um, I will tell you that, that one of the interesting things I learned from her is that she would never want to meet her guests beforehand. She would never want to have a conversation about maybe what we're going to talk about. And, you know, like the Tonight Show, you know, we, I, 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 you know, they, they hand these notes back and forth to each other so that, so that I know, Matt, uh, I've got a really good joke that I'm, I'm, I'm saving. And so if you set me up, I'll, right. I'll make your, I'll, I'll, I'll make your day with, with making everyone laugh. She didn't want that. She wanted to go in and I mean, she had a sense, she knew who they were, she knew what they did. It's not that she didn't do her homework, but she wanted to have a genuineness. And I truly believe in watching her, you know, uh, kind of watching her, you know, kind of a rise in, in popularity. I believe that that was one of her secrets, that that was one of the magical things is that people could tell that she was being genuine. This was, this was real curiosity. I don't get what you're saying, right? So I'm going to ask you and I'm going to ask you just like that. Right, right. Oh, that's great. Uh, Dave, uh, one of the, the topics I always dig into with guests too is the notion of advice. And um, it, it can go any way, like any way you want to take it, right? Sometimes it's advice we wish we would have received. Uh, sometimes it's uh, the best advice we've ever received. Or, uh, you know, sometimes for me, it's like maybe something from a coach or mentor that said something that... Uh, you know, basically when you're a know-it-all teenager feels like it almost feels like a goofy phrase but then as you get older you realize there was a lot of, a lot of uh, wisdom packed in there there was a, a big information payload that they had been able to distill down to a simple element but uh, just curious from your perspective in all that you've done and your different classes uh, good advice that you've received or good advice you might have for listeners Wow. Well, I've received a lot of good. I'm, I, uh, I'm always cautious how much I have to give, but I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um, you know, there's uh, it, when people ask me um, what was the most profound book that I've ever read, you know, they want recommendations of books. I, you know, I, I, I often don't read books more than once. Um, there's so many good books out there that I don't. But I, I will tell you one that really um, made an impact on my thinking, and that's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. 
And so I think one of the, and this isn't just, you know, Dave's opinion. This is, right. uh, you can look at this in, you know, this is, is, has been research proven, uh, the work of Martin Seligman and others, um, you know, will attest to this. But, um, but I think one of the things that I, you know, I, 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 I grew to learn, and if somebody could have told me earlier and saved me some time, I would appreciate it, uh, is that, that really the deepest, richest life, if you want to, if you want to live like, a, like the best life, it's, it's a meaningful one. It's a meaningful one. It is when you, you take the time to find, uh, you know, they, some people call it the signature strength. Of, you know, Sir Ken Robinson called it the element. You find yeah. the thing that it's like, this is what I think I have to contribute to the world. And then, you know, which is which is great. It's better than spending your time doing that is better than doing things you don't enjoy, right? Or that you don't get lost in. But then to take it and turn it towards something larger than yourself. And, um, and, and, and then a second thing I would offer, which of, of all people, you know, and they're not, not necessarily who you would think of. I mean, he's become a friend. He's a smart man, but he's not, you know, he's not always attributed as a philosopher, but, um, but when Ashton Kutcher came to my class once, he, um, he shared with my students, he asked them, um, you know, how many of you guys know Newton's third law of motion? And uh, I think they probably did, and they didn't know where he was going with it, and they were kind of like halfway raising their hands. You know, the the idea of every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Right. And then he goes, we, you know, we all take that as, you know, it's a physical law. We don't even question it. I drop something. We can watch it fall to the ground. It's a physical thing. He goes, but what if, um, what if it was also a social law, he says? What if um, the idea of the things that you want I want to be loved. I want friends. I want friendship. I, you know, uh, that you give it away. You give it away, and trust it to to come back to you. And um, and you know, I I've thought about that. And and you know, while you can't quite prove it in the solid way that you can a physical law, I I, I understand right. that. But when you think about it, um, the people that you know who are surrounded by friends and community are people that are pretty much always spending their time feeding friends and community with their, with their actions and lives. And, um, and I, you know, I really believe that uh, the generosity and empathy and friendship are the type of currency that, uh, that make the world a lot richer as well. Um, and certainly if we were looking out for each other, uh, our roads, it wouldn't be perfect, but they would sure be a, a lot less bumpy. So those would be some of the things that um, I feel pretty solid that uh, if you ask me 10 years from now, I won't be I won't be swaying too much away from that. Great. David, it was a pleasure having you on here. I just wanted to double check, too. Was there anything that we uh, that you thought we might cover that we didn't uh, just want no. to make sure? No, I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, I, I mean, we, we met Matt through a mutual friend and uh, you had a, had a kind of a meet and greet kind of conversation, uh, which I, which I really, really enjoyed. And then I've had the opportunity of seeing the work that you're doing. And, um, and I just, like I said, I, I'm, I'm now adding, I already told you this, I'm adding <laughs> you to that collection of, uh, of people that I think are doing great things in the world Thanks. that I like to all friends. So, um, so thank, thank you. you for having me. And I hope yeah. this was a value to, uh, to someone who listens in. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dave. Hey there, it's Matt, you know, from the podcast. 
Before you go, I'd appreciate your help. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Positive ratings and reviews will help the podcast grow. Another way to help the podcast is to share it with people in your network that may be interested in stories of craft, creativity, collaboration, and persistence. Thanks again for listening and have a fantastic day.